Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 88, Revelation, the Dragon's War of Fury. And in this episode, I would like us to conclude Revelation chapter 12 as we continue looking at this great Christian myth and the Christian story retold by paying particular attention to what it is that the dragon does once he realizes that his attempts at defeating the child of the woman have been thwarted. And the imaginative and the explanatory power that this chapter in Revelation gives the church to understand our place in the world and to understand why the world looks the way it does and to give us a very deeply rooted sense of identity and place in the world is um, second to none, I think, in the entire New Testament. And so I'm excited for us to jump into this and to just talk openly and frankly about the church and what our attitude should be toward those around us that we perceive are opposing the ways of Jesus in the world and what he has in fact called us to do as a result and what we can expect to receive in the middle of it. And so um, I'm just excited to dive into this with you and um, let's just get right into it. As we begin this week's episode, I just want to remind you of some of the places that we've been um, throughout um, portions of this podcast. Um, You know, we began way back in the garden in Genesis 1 by looking at the fact that man was made in the image of God and called to rule the world on God's behalf and ultimately how Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve um, in Genesis 3 was directly related to that rule and allowing, you know, requesting that if God really thought you were capable of ruling the world, he would let you make your decisions on your own. It's that he doesn't really trust you. He doesn't really think you're a good ruler. Therefore, if, if you took matters into your own hands, things would be much better for you. And, and we've been tracing this theme al- along the way, honestly, for quite some time and ultimately resulting in Jesus as being the true representation of what a human was always supposed to be and do, and having come to reclaim and restore for all mankind the very central relationships that we all once enjoyed with God in the garden. Perfect relationship between man and God, perfect relationship between man and other men, perfect relationship with um, mankind and the creation, and then a perfect relationship with man within himself. And all four of those relationships are described in Genesis 1 and 2, and all four of them were destroyed and lost and skewed and bent um, as a result of Genesis 3. And the biblical narrative is one giant story about how God is going to reclaim those four beautiful relationships for his world and through his people. And of course, you've seen and we've talked at length about how God decided to call Israel and, and Abraham to be a great nation where this people was going to be God's answer to solve the problem of all of fallen humanity. And yet those people were still part of fallen humanity. And so even God's own people, when given the law, when told how to live and what to do, and when God saved them, they still were misguided because something about their view of who he was and their view of themselves was still messed up. And so, of course, the Lord brings Jesus as the answer to the dilemma that mankind has been facing since the beginning. And we need to be, as I shared in my last By the Book episode, just as open 
to the Lord doing work internally and rooting darkness out of our hearts internally as he is interested in rooting out the darkness in the world around us. And a, a well-rounded Christian is one who is as equally interested in seeing the darkness, sinfulness, and fallenness in his or her own heart as he or she is in seeing it and dealing with it um, outside of themselves. And so at, at different points in the podcast, I've tried to tie in how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Israel was supposed to be and do. And Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the mankind as a whole was supposed to be and do. And as a result, Jesus creates a people who both individually and communally carry on the very work of being true humans that he began when he actually came. And Revelation 12 is a beautiful picture of that type of reality because what's happening here in this great myth and the reason why this has such powerful explanatory power is because it frames what happened to Jesus and then it couches the same opposition and the same struggle and the same path to victory for Jesus's people as it did for Jesus himself. And so what, what I want to do again today is I just want to let us feel the effects of this narrative, hear the similarities between the things that Jesus dealt with and then the things that Jesus's enemy, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, as John describes for us right in the middle of the chapter, which again is an echo back to Genesis 3, and we can't miss that when we, when we read this um, narrative. But I want you to hear, and I, I definitely want to hear with you, the similarities between what Jesus dealt with when he faced his enemy and what you and I deal with as Jesus' followers when we also face an enemy. Because we're in a culture right now in America that is very, very intent on seeing other people as our enemies, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you personally happen to be on, um, you might see those on the other side as your enemy. Or depending upon what stance you take in certain moral issues in this world, you happen to see those who are on a different side of this equation as your enemy. And John does something that is very needed for the, the church in his day, and it is very needed in the church in our day, and that is an explanation of who the real enemy is, what is actually going on, who is the enemy. And I think this situation, this question is very, very important because people spend countless hours, if not days, weeks, months, years of their lives fighting against other people that they perceive to be their enemies when in reality, that's not the case at all. And we are duped by the real enemy himself in the process when we believe that it's other people that we are fighting against and that they need to you know, quickly await the swift judgment of God for their ignorance and waywardness. But John does us a tremendous service. And so I want to repeat the service he does for us by just rereading again, Revelation 12. I hope it's never um, dull to you or tempting you to Fast forward in the podcast, every time I read a section of the word, the, the greatest benefit I can offer to you as a podcaster is for you to just listen to what the words themselves actually say. And then, of course, I'll try to make commentary about them. But um, Revelation 12 just says it so well. I, I would rather just read what John says and, and then comment. So here, here it is again. 
Revelation 12, 1 to 17. Hear the story and then get ready to discuss what part we now play in, in this story. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, if you want to go back and re-listen to episode 87, the Christian story retold, I tried to do my best attempt at helping us understand the Christian myth, the Christian narrative, the story we tell ourselves to help us find our place in the world and cultures have been doing this since the beginning of time and will continue until the end of time. And Revelation 12 is John's attempt at giving the Christians the true story by which to understand reality and understand ourselves. And yet when you read sections of Revelation 12, particularly those who are unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, we, we like to read sections in the book that remind us of other familiar parts of the Bible and then imagine that John is speaking about those familiar parts. And, and let me give you an example. Um, I had a conversation with a good friend um, several months ago. I was talking about the book of Revelation, talking about chapter 12 and the idea that Satan is cast out of heaven and, and a third of you know the angels were thrown down with him and was making the comment that that, that most likely is referring to you know the fall of Satan um, before you know life in the garden in Genesis 1. Um, you know it's interesting I, I, another friend just shared with me this morning who's working his way through the Bible for, for him for the first time and he said it's so interesting that 
he's halfway through the book of Ezekiel and he's like, I, I just, I've noticed that, that the Bible doesn't really explain where Satan comes from. And he's right, it doesn't. And so sometimes we think we're finding places where we see his origins or we see, and, and the Bible really does remain silent there. But this one friend from several months ago was reading Revelation 12 and said, oh yeah, that, you know, he's being thrown down to the earth. His angels are thrown down with him. You know, this is his, you know, I don't know, I guess his rebellion in the garden and then he's thrown down. Well, the way Revelation is told, this particular account of him being thrown down um, happens after the woman gives birth to the male child and the male child is caught up to heaven and to the throne and then the dragon turns and tries to attack the woman. And so what's actually interesting here is because this casting of Satan out of heaven occurs after the birth of this child, um, the casting down of heaven, uh, the casting down of Satan rather from heaven is a representation of the spiritual defeat that occurred as a result of this child in his life. And so Gregory Stevenson, again, in A Slaughtered Lamb is really helpful. And, and here's what he says. He said, what war in heaven and the subsequent casting down of the dragon symbolically depict is the defeat of Satan by the cross. The deceptive power of Satan is unmasked as mere illusion by the faithful witness to the point of death of God's Messiah. Yet this hymn asserts that the dragon owes his defeat not only to the cross, but also to all those who have taken up the pattern of the Christ. They defeated him, according to verse 11, by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Revelation 12 then depicts not the primordial defeat of Satan, but the perpetual defeat of Satan begun with the cross of Christ and continuing in the lives of those who take up their cross after him. It testifies that the kingdom of God is present, victory is present, power is present, and the dragon is defeated whenever God's people witness faithfully according to the pattern of the Christ. This, I think, is a more faithful way of understanding Revelation chapter 12 and the dragon being defeated. You may even remember this time when Jesus sends his disciples out to minister two by two in Luke chapter 10, maybe Luke 11, I'm drawing a blank here, but he sends them out and they come back and say, we saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, right? The powerful move of the kingdom of God displaces Satan from a position of authority. And when Jesus not only refused Satan's offer of all the kingdoms of this world, obtained, of course, in the ways of this world, Satan was dethroned as a, you know, as a, um, a, a, a myth. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the word. Uh, he was shown to be a fraud. There's my word. He was shown to be a fraud. His power and his desire to rule the earth in coercive Babylon-type ways was shown to be insufficient and unattractive to Jesus, who came and despite Satan's offer of building a kingdom based upon those principles, when Jesus rejected that, Jesus actually was able to root his kingdom in something greater, something more powerful, and something that will never end. That's the kingdom he's inviting his followers into. 
And so what's happening in this myth is that we're seeing the defeat of Satan by means of the cross. Jesus's refusal to play by Satan's game, Jesus's refusal to hold grudges or hold bitterness. You remember from the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. You see, Jesus knew that his enemies were not people, but the very people mocking Jesus and taunting him to come down off the cross if you are the son of God, Jesus heard in those accusations verbatim accusations that he received from Satan himself in the temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four. Jesus knows that people are caught in the clutches of a real enemy who has tempted them and and baited them and deceived them into believing that living life their own way uh, as opposed to God's way is the best choice. It's the same argument that the enemy has used from Genesis chapter three. He's still doing it. And of course, we looked at this in several episodes, episode 29, 30, and 31, where I tried to show how what Jesus was doing in his encounter with the enemy was recapitulating, was repeating, was restructuring the same pattern that all humanity fell into in the garden and that Israel also gave into um, in their time in the wilderness. And I would encourage you, if you don't remember those episodes, to go back and listen to them again because they shape a tremendous amount of the way I believe we are supposed to understand reality as the New Testament unfolds it. Um, But I won't repeat all of that there. Those episodes are available for you if you care to listen to them. But what's happening here in in Revelation 12 is we're told, as Stevenson points out here, that, that the enemy, you know, the dragon is continually defeated whenever the people of God continue to faithfully witness to the pattern of the Christ. And let me read it to you again from verse 11. It says, that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Now, the love not their lives even unto death is is a very fascinating way to describe it. it. And here's what it means. The kingdoms of this world always function by power and aggression and coercion and manipulation because they are always self-protective at their root. They are always fear-based, fear of what we would lose if we lost control, if we lost power. And they resort to manipulation because they want to maintain control, but don't want to give off the appearance that they're just controlling fearful people. And so ultimately at root of all control is fear-based and ultimately at fear-based is is this reality that if I lost what was most precious to me, life would no longer be worth living. And so people in personal relationships, family relationships, community relationships, national relationships are always seeking to protect their own, protect the things they believe are most valuable to them. John sums that up here in the words, love not their own lives, even unto death. What that means is in the kingdom of God, when you can give all of that up, you are truly free to love other people despite what they do to you or think about you. And the only way that can happen 
is through the forgiveness of sins, which is what Jesus offers people. He offers them love and acceptance and embrace by him, not based on anything that they've done or not done. And what that does is free us from all of these self-justifying, fearful, controlling, manipulative things that we think we need to be a part of in order to find life, in order to find meaning, in order to find hope. That is a kingdom of this world. And if you're listening to me talk about fear-based and control and manipulation and coercion, yes, I'm very well aware of the fact that in many religious circles, in many church settings, those who follow Christ can still be caught up in fear, control, coercion, manipulation. It's very common, very common. And in those places, the kingdom of God has not been fully understood or fully appreciated or fully embraced. And people are trying to live out the kingdom of God through kingdom of this world means. It can't work. It won't work. Many of those people are caught. According to Revelation 12, one of the reasons they're caught is because they have an enemy who has convinced them that their way of flourishing in the world comes through kingdom of, of the world type of means. We'll get to that as we get to Revelation 13 and see the way in which the dragon sets up the greatest deception of all to try to convince the world that his ways are still best. But back to Revelation 12, verse 11. It says, these people have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. In other words, they remained faithful to the pattern of the Christ despite losing everything that they may have held dear including for many of them, their very lives. So once a person is willing to lose their life, they could lose a lot of things that are less than that. Like they could lose their, their rights. They could lose their possessions. They could lose their standing. They could lose their reputation. Any of the kinds of things that people tend to self-protect over, Jesus is offering a life that is free of all of that. And Jesus himself embodied it and is willing to share it with his followers. But notice at the beginning of verse 11 in Revelation 12, it says they have conquered him. Now the word conquer, we've been playing with this through the book of Revelation. It started in chapters two and in three, where to every one of the churches to whom John is writing, the, the, the promise to the one who conquers, to him who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will. And he gives a handful of promises to the one who conquers. And as we've worked our way through the book, you remember when we got to chapter 12, uh, chapter five, I'm sorry, I raised the question of the point being, you're reading this, this letter and it's like to the one who conquers, 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 what does it mean to conquer? And we looked at the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and then John turns and he sees a lamb, right? Because on the cross, God conquered sin and death by allowing sin and death to conquer him. This is the play on words that's going on in the book of Revelation. We need to be tuned into it because what's happening here is that these believers are conquering the dragon and it gives us two reasons, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So here's the word of their testimony. We are called to be witnesses. That is what testimony means. We are to bear witness, to give witness. Well, if we conquer the dragon by the blood of the lamb, 
then what we are highlighting here as lampstands, remember, which we're called to be in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus, we are called to shine light on the space in front of the lampstand, according to Exodus 25. Well, what's in front of the lampstand? The bread of the presence. Jesus claims himself to be the bread of the presence. And so the responsibility of the church is to shine light onto Jesus Christ. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's how we found life. And that's how we want others to find life. But notice what John does. He doesn't just say that's the word of their testimony. They're declaring with their mouths, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. He's showing them that their refusal to love their lives even unto death, he said they do not love their lives even unto death. What that means is the church doesn't just proclaim a message of look to Jesus. The church embodies the message, look to Jesus. The message look to Jesus says, Jesus self-sacrificially, compassionately laid his life down for you because he loves you. The church who proclaims that message embodies that message when the church says, we too will self-sacrificially, compassionately lay our lives and our rights and our status down for you. This is what Paul was getting at, which I shared in episode 38 of this podcast, where he talks about him embodying and filling up in his own body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And I won't go back into detail with that, but I would encourage you to re-listen to that episode if you don't remember what I said there, because Paul saw in himself the embodiment of who the Messiah was and what he did. And then Paul encourages his churches and his followers in the churches to do the exact same thing. And that's what John is highlighting for us here. Um, he's saying that we've conquered the, the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. You know, but it, it's funny because we, we've got this reference and, and in verse 17, the, the reference is the same. Um, keep, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, um, these are the ones to whom the dragon wages war. And, and just so that you're following the mythical train of thought here, the Christian narrative, you've got the woman, it's the, the, the people of God that have, you know, produced the Messiah and Ultimately, this child is caught up to the throne. The dragon pursues the, the woman, the people of God. He cannot stop her. Um, the, you know, God protects the woman. And so the dragon in fury turns his attention toward her offspring, right? Toward those who are a production of the same kind of life that was produced by, uh, of the Messiah, and so what Revelation 12 is describing is not some futuristic group of people. It quite literally is describing Christians. And one of the best ways we know that's the case is because of the words that John keeps using, you know, the word of their testimony. And he makes war on, on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So you've got these two things, the words of God, the commands of God, you know, the testimony of Jesus. It's these two phrases. You remember back to Revelation 1, John describes himself like this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So you notice, <clears throat> and, or maybe you don't, but that the entire book of Revelation is written by John from the island of Patmos where John has been sent and exiled on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
John has been banished to a place. He's been excluded from his own people and from his own land as a result of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here, John now is giving the church an explanation of precisely who is behind his exile. Who is really the one who, because he is so furious that he was unable to stop the plans of God, or if you stop and think about it, the enemy has exorbitant reason to be furious. He intentionally killed Jesus in order to stop the plans of God from unfolding. And it was his killing of Jesus that brought God's plans to fulfillment. This is not just um, a defeat. This is a humiliation. The enemy of our souls has been definitively humiliated on the cross. In fact, these are the words that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 2 to describe it. They've been shamed. They've been humiliated. They've been mocked. And the mockery is that every attempt people would normally grasp for to prevent their own lives from being taken, Jesus never grasped for. He never pled for his own life. He never defended himself. He was faithful to follow his father all the way to death, even death on a cross. And in the face of that type of trust that the father knows what's best was the very kind of trust Adam and Eve gave up in the garden. They believed they knew what was best and people have been following their own compass ever since until Jesus. And in Jesus, a literal death blow was given to the enemy, to the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, who John tells us is the accuser. He's been accusing people day and night. And that's ultimately what he is. The, the word Satan, the Satan just means the accuser. He, that's what he does. He accuses you and basically says, you know, you have no right to, you know, look at what you've done. You have no right to stand in the presence of God. At which point a faithful follower of Jesus will say the blood of the lamb is how it is that I'm able to stand clean and pure in the presence of God. He'll deal with my sin, but he's gonna do it his way and in his time. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. And so John, don't forget, is writing this book to Christians, some of which are facing the same difficulty he's facing. Others need a swift rebuke because they are not facing difficulty, most likely, because their faithfulness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is lagging in some way. And therefore, they're not really seen as a threat by the Roman establishment. Um, we'll get into this again in Revelation 13 when I lay out what I think John is trying to teach us regarding the dragon's strategy for how he's going to attack the church. But the main point is that what John is trying to describe is the narrative that you and I are always a part of. Why it is that life sometimes is rough for Christians. Why it is that the church is oftentimes under attack. Why it is that in recent years, more and more truth has been coming to light that sexual abuse and sexual um, control and manipulation and power struggles and financial greed and theft are going on 
in churches. Why does that happen? Why is the church under attack? Why do people give up on the church and walk away? Why is purity within the church such a rare thing? Why are people afraid to talk about their real selves in churches? Questions like these and countless thousands more that I don't even have insight into are all related to the fact that we have an enemy who is enraged and furious with the results of his failed attempt to bring about the downfall of the kingdom of God. And because he could no longer touch the child of the woman, and because the Lord himself provided protection and care for the woman in the wilderness, he turns his attention to those who follow the lamb. He turns his attention to the woman's offspring. That's the Christian church. That's people like John, who because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, is actually exiled on Patmos at the time he's writing this book. And so in verse 17, he tells us that those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, it's the same group of people. It's the woman's offspring. And how are the woman's offspring described? As people like that, who hold the commandments of God and keep the test or keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the dragon's intent. He wants to destroy the church. Now, of all the things that I think Revelation 12 um, gives us as a church, I think one of the biggest ones is that it really helps us explain many of the why questions that I posed several minutes ago. You know, why is purity so rare within the church? And why is there so much opposition in the world to the Christian message? And why is Christianity so hard to live out in your own life? And why are many people today leaving the church? And why is hypocrisy so present in the lives of churches? And on and on and on. And the answer we have is not just that people are stubborn or that they are power hungry or that they are greedy. It might be that. And those things are always present. But the New Testament never paints a one-sided picture that mankind's problem is strictly a result of his or her own sin. The Bible also runs a parallel track, and that is the explanation that a deeper reality, we have an enemy of our souls. We have someone who is furious with the woman and goes off to make war on her offspring. Straight out war. There's a battle, an onslaught going on for the souls of those who are attempting to follow Jesus. And so unlike what I picked up in my church growing up, that it somehow was my fault that I couldn't work through or navigate through the issues that I was trying or, or realizing that my life was hard and the struggle was real. I felt it every day. Revelation 12 paints the picture for us that hardships in this life may not be the result of disobedience for the believer. They might be the result of experiencing tribulation because of Satan's defeat. You know, we don't enter this world on neutral ground. You enter this world straight up, particularly once you choose to follow Jesus, you enter into, you are now the enemy's enemy. 
And the same kinds of things that Jesus experienced while trying to confront the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God will in fact hit us if we are faithfully following in Jesus's footsteps. And I think this needs to be talked about more than it really is. Why is life hard? How are you supposed to make it through this kind of life? But I think Revelation 12 also says that if this is the case, then we need to know this enemy. I mean, Jesus himself told us in John 16 that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so you, we, we have to remember that when Paul talks in Ephesians 4 about giving no opportunity to the devil, Paul then goes on to speak about letting go of bitterness and resentment and anger and to forgive one another. You know, the enemy of our souls hates resolved conflict. How many people do you know who are literally caught right now in unresolved conflict? They don't know how to navigate their way out because they're trying to straddle this kingdom of this world mentality where you need to protect your own and, and hold on to what's yours and stand on your rights. And Jesus wants to challenge that. But the only way he can challenge that is to dig deep into the roots that the enemy may have taken in route to preventing you from actually being able to work through conflict. Or as Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, that we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. Forgiveness is a big time issue. And Paul wants to help the Corinthians understand that. Harmony in relationships is always challenged by the enemy. This tribalism, this nationalism, this protect your own idea Spiritual warfare is always present fighting against um, maintaining unity. And this is what um, Ephesians chapter 6 is all about. And it's a section that many of you may know as the full armor of God, putting on the armor of God. And while many Christians today want to apply that in an individualistic way, that was never what Paul intended that to be applied when he wrote that letter to the Ephesian Christians. Paul just spent a chapter and a half describing family relationships in the home, husbands, wives, slave masters, children's parents. And then he proceeds to explain in even that most fundamental level, the fact that conflicts still ensue in relationships that are that tight knit, how much more do conflicts actually exist in churches as he proceeds to explain in Ephesians 4 about how we are to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, that only makes sense as it relates to relationships with other people. And Jesus in chapter 2 of Ephesians breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, that dividing wall of hostility that makes one group think and believe that they are actually superior or better than another group and has more of a right to enter into God's presence than another group of people. That is something that Jesus came to break down because that is a kingdom of the world mindset that has no place in the kingdom of God. And so listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, I think could be a summary verse of Revelation 12. Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul's reminding people that all of the infighting and all of the backbiting and all of the bickering and all of the disgruntled relationships, your battle is not against other people. You are fighting a spiritual war 
other people, yourself included, are caught up in that. And if you are not careful, will end up living out the principalities and powers of this dark world instead of living out the kingdom of light principles driven by the Holy Spirit. This is what the New Testament is at pains to help us to understand and why I'm so glad I shared with you my interview with Rob Reamer um, in the Buy the Book episode on soul care because Rob is helping us understand that a lot of times it's these internal things that we don't know what to deal do with and how to deal with that prevent us from fully engaging not only our relationship with Jesus but our relationship with other people. And this is something that we need to understand. Paul also reminds us in 2 Corinthians that we walk by faith, not by sight. And there are a few times in our lives where things are more important to realize that it is by faith in who Jesus is that we cannot see. That we are being fought and hunted by an enemy that we also cannot see. And that the people that we do see are not our enemy. They may be caught in the grip of the enemy just like we have been at various points in our own lives. And so we're we're encouraged that God will protect us. God knows our plight. He has walked it before us. (laughs) And this is the way it actually works. And so we're in a spiritual war. Revelation will call the Christians and the saints to faithful endurance. This is a call for the endurance of the saints. We know the war we're in and we know the way that we defeat the enemy is in the blood of the, of the lamb and the word of our testimony when we love not our own lives, even unto death. This is the kind of heart work that Jesus wants to do in and through his people. He always wants to start with them first and to free us of the types of kingdom of this world mentalities that drown out his ability to work in and through us. And I I would have to end this episode by just saying that, that the reality is there are many followers of Jesus in this world. And I don't just pick on Christians because I think Christians are bad. I'm picking on, um, the people that I think Jesus cares enough to address. And those are disciples. And if you read the gospels, you find that Jesus loved his disciples, but he was always blunt with them. He was always direct. When their faith was weak, he called it weak. When they lacked faith, he said they did. When they believed something that he was, you know, they wanted him to do something that he thought was completely contrary to his own character, he let them know that the spirit from which they were speaking was coming from somewhere other than him. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. And I hope as I mature in my own life, I will love other people enough to tell them the truth. And the truth is, there are many followers of Jesus today who do not want to conquer the dragon in the same way that Jesus did. Many of them would really rather defeat him with their own versions of strength, might, and power. And the dragon knows this. And so he offers them something that many of them cannot resist. He offers them a hybrid of sorts, something that appears to be Christian, 
but is really beastly because it operates according to the ways of the dragon. Or as Revelation 13.11 says, which we'll get to in several weeks, this beast looks like a lamb and it speaks like a dragon. And all through Revelation, I have been trying to strike this same chord. That it is very possible within the heart of people, which Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? And then the Lord says that he is the one who searches the mind and the heart. And if we open ourselves up to him to allow him to search us at the depths of who we are, he will bring healing, light, restoration, and hope. But if we cling to things in this world, kind of like the opposite of what John's describing in Revelation 12, if we love not our lives even unto death, but if we love our lives and fight to prevent death or fight to prevent a loss of something that we hold dear, what we will find in our own lives is our attempt to straddle this line between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And we will find ourselves duped quite literally because the beast that John refers to in Revelation 13, 11, he will later go on to call the false prophet. And these in fact are realities that are just ever present in our world. And that is that we will attempt to bring about kingdom of God realities by means of the kingdom of this world. It never works. It will not work. And that mentality, Revelation 13 tells us, is driven exclusively by the dragon, which is why Jesus was able to identify many of his own religious leaders of his day as beasts, because all beasts are driven by Babylon and all beasts are driven by the dragon. All through the book of Revelation, I have been attempting to highlight the fact that our hearts can be gripped by various ideologies, loves, passions, things that make us excited, things that discourage us, things that make us wish for a change in our world. And those ideologies and things that grip our hearts, some of them can be rooted in God and his kingdom. And some of them can be rooted in Satan and his kingdom. Having the Holy Spirit over time and in relationship with you help you sort those out is primarily the point of sanctification. But there are sadly people who in the end will see that many of the things they loved and many of the ways they went about bringing about the things that they loved have actually been more deeply rooted in a beastly Babylon-style way of doing things than a kingdom of God way of doing things. And it really does center largely around issues of power, strength, and might. How did Jesus demonstrate power when he defeated or conquered the enemy on the cross? He did it by allowing the enemy to conquer him. He did it in weakness, in vulnerability, in shame, 
in mockery, in humiliation. And when he chose not to to be sidetracked in faithfully witnessing to the truth of who he is and who his father is, even in the face of that humiliation and mockery and shame, he effectively put humiliation, mockery, and shame to death. He's inviting us to follow in his footsteps in the pattern of the Christ. But the only way we can do that is when he deals with us as individuals and as a community to such an extent that we are no longer bothered by things like humiliation, shame, or mockery. As long as those things still bother us and we defend ourselves in the midst of them, we are powerless to carry on the work of the kingdom of God in this world. That's just a fact. And so, Lord Jesus, please help us. We need the help. We need it tremendously. And we are so grateful for your patience with us as we work our way through this. But the reality is the dragon hates Christ. He hates the woman. He hates the church. And he hates you. And he is constantly, through areas of deception and otherwise, attempting us to be off, um, you know, off our course in order to follow the, the ways that he sets forth in this world. And we need to be on guard against that. And so that, that's really all the time I'm going to take. I know this one was another sort of long episode. I'm, I'm working on trying to get out my thoughts. And I'm thankful again for those that are just tracking with me. You guys are great. Um, really do want to appreciate you as listeners. Um, I, I, this wouldn't be any fun at all if it wasn't for you. And so thank you for reaching out or emailing me at, you know, unbinding the Bible at gmail.com. Drop me a note or something and let me know where you are in the podcast or, or if you're, um, tracking along or, or however that works. Um, but it's just great to, to interact with you. I hope things are going well. If, if there's anything I could be in prayer for you about, or you'd love to, reach out just to, to talk through some things, um, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Just don't, don't think of me as a stranger. Just think of me as a friend. And um, I'd love to connect in, in any way we can. So um, until, next, until next time, have a great week.